Hi, my name is Anna Marcoline. I'm a psychotherapist and life coach who's been practicing for 25 years. This podcast is my way of continuing to pay it forward. I am here with you as a therapist and life coach, but I'm also coming to you as a wife, mother, daughter, sister, and a friend. I'm here with you and I want you to know that you're not alone. Welcome. Welcome to or welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 157. So many of us dread having to convey our ideas to others. We often feel ill-equipped, anxious, and totally awkward. Public speaking experts help us by focusing on planned communication experiences, such as slide presentations, pitches, or formal talks. Yet, most of our professional and personal communication occurs in spontaneous situations that creep up on us all the time and all too often leave us feeling flustered and stumbling for words. How can we rise to the occasion and shine when we're put on the spot? Enter my next guest, Matt Abrahams. Matt wrote the book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. This is such a great book. I devoured it. Matt is a Stanford lecturer, a podcast host, and communication expert. This book, Think Fast, Talk Smarter, provides tangible, actionable skills to help even the most anxious of speakers succeed when speaking spontaneously. Abrahams provides science-based strategies for managing anxiety. Who doesn't have an anxi- any kind of anxiety really when we're speaking publicly? Responding to the mood of the room and making content concise, relevant, compelling, and memorable. He draws on stories from his clients and students and he offers best practices for navigating question and answer sessions, shining in job interviews, providing effective feedback, making small talk, fixing faux pas, persuading others, and handling other impromptu speaking tasks. This book tells you exactly how to give a toast, how to apologize to someone, how to do that ever-increasing social anxiety piece that so many of us deal with of going to a cocktail party and having to have or get involved in small talk when you don't know a soul there. So whether it be a prospective client asking you an unexpected question during a meeting or an all eyes turned on you at a dinner party, you're going to learn how to navigate the situation like a pro and bring out your very best. So as always, give this one a listen please rate with five stars, subscribe and review. It makes all the difference in the world. Enjoy this interview. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Badass Confidence Coach Podcast. My guest today is Matt Abrahams and I have been so looking forward to this conversation with Matt as he has written a wonderful book that I have dog-eared and highlighted all throughout because this is a book that is for everyone. This is a book for anybody who is out there who's speaking up in a conference room, who needs to give a eulogy, who needs to give a toast, you name it. I love this book and I'm so, so happy to have Matt on our podcast. So welcome, Matt, and tell us a little bit more about you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. And I have to share with you, it, it brings uh, delight to me that you're dog-earing and highlighting people often, when you write a book, people say, what does success look like? And for me, success is all about 
providing useful material that people can leverage and dog ears and underlying. That's how I read. And that's what I like to read is things that teach me and help me. So thank you. That makes me feel good. Um, I am a, I am a lecturer at Stanford's graduate school of business. I teach strategic communication and have been doing that for almost 15 years. Uh, I also am a coach and, and am brought in to, to coach organizations around strategic communication and just a, applied communication, how to give confident presentations, run meetings, et cetera. And I host a podcast called Think Fast, Talk Smart. The new book is called Think Faster, Talk Smarter. Clearly, I am not very creative uh, in terms of naming, but everything I do is all around trying to help people hone and develop their communication skills. Yeah. You know, when I first heard about your book and your, I believe your publicist reached out to me, I thought to myself, well, why would I not want to talk to somebody who could help me think quicker in situations because how many of us have been in a conversation have been at a whether it be a cocktail party or a, or a networking event and we walk away we go oh i should have said this or oh i should have said that you know what i mean like kicking yourself a little bit in the butt saying come on i mean come on i've done that so many times and that's why i think you know you being the expert you can help us you know how to navigate those those waters that scare a lot of us Right. Absolutely. It, you know, if you think about it, most of our communication is not planned. It's spontaneous. Yet when we think about communication, we think about the big presentation I got to create slides for or the pitch that I have to really rehearse or the meetings with agendas. But most of our communication in our personal and professional lives is in the moment. And the stakes for these are often quite high. Big, important things happen as a result of small talk or answering questions or giving feedback. So it is important to focus on these uh, for sure. You know, and we get so nervous. So, you know, in preparing for this conversation with you, I really did a deep dive into why. So I do public speaking and I, mm-hmm. I know this to be true now that when you're nervous, take take those feelings and tell yourself you're excited. So, you know, mm-hmm. nerves and excitement run along the same sort of neural pathways in our brains yeah. is what mm-hmm. they say. Right. So yep. I tell myself I'm excited. And if I wasn't nervous, I probably wouldn't care about my audience and who I was speaking to. Right. So that has worked well for me, but I was thinking about why I get nervous for my personality, being an extrovert, being someone who loves to talk to, I mean, people have said to me, Anna, you could talk to a doorknob. I mean, you could talk to anyone, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I, I love to talk to people. I'm very curious about human beings. But I remember when I was in first grade and I was about to go on the stage during the Christmas recital, I was six years old and I remember being dressed as an angel and I was so happy about my cute little outfit, but I felt something in my stomach and Mm -hmm. I'll never forget this. And I said to my mom, I, I don't know, my stomach's upset. I, something's in my stomach. And she goes, Oh honey, those are butterflies. Mm -hmm. And I remember at that time thinking, but I don't want them there. Why are they in there? Because, you know, as six-year-olds, we're concrete thinkers. Yeah. It started that young. And I was in a choir and I was singing like Christmas carols at the Christmas recital. But so where does that come from? At such a young age, I had this image of butterflies in my stomach that has continued really throughout my whole life. And it's a really hard one to move past. It's really hard to not get tripped up. Let's take a break from the episode to talk about my partnership with AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. 
I gave AG1 a try because I was so tired of taking supplements and wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional bases every day. I really was looking for better gut health, a boost in energy, immune system support, and I hated, like I said, taking those darn pills. And I really was looking for a supplement that tasted great, something I wanted to drink every morning. So now what do I do? I take it every morning before I start my coffee and my workout and it makes me feel unstoppable. Like I'm ready to take on the day and I know that I'm doing something good for my body. In this time in our lives where it seems like viruses are 12 months out of the year, this is the best thing that you can do for your body. AG1 will replace your multivitamin, your probiotic, and more in one simple drinkable habit. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs of your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Anna. That's drinkag1.com slash Anna. Check it out now. You will not regret it. Absolutely. And in fact, it is built into who we are as humans. Those of us who study anxiety around speaking fully believe that this is part of being human. Uh, It has to do with how others perceive us and our relative status in a group. And, And that's important. And when I say status, I don't mean who drives the fancy car, has the most social media likes. It's it's your position in a group. And we're very sensitive to that. And so it is innate but it doesn't mean we can't manage it. And I love that you brought up the work of Alison Woods Brooks. Alison is a friend of mine. She teaches at Harvard's Business School. And she did some really fascinating research into that if we reframe the feelings that we have, the physiological experiences we have of anxiety, especially around communication and see it as excitement, that we actually feel better about it and do better. So we feel less nervous and we do better. And and you're right. You can be excited to share your ideas, but those butterflies in your stomach, what's the saying? We, we, we just want to get them flying in the right direction. And so there are things you can do to manage anxiety. And the, the book I have can, the, what the book represents is a six-step methodology. That's the first part of the book. And then the second part of the book is all about how to apply them in certain circumstances. And the very first step in the six steps is managing anxiety. So it is a real issue for most people. 85% of people report being nervous in high-stakes communication situations. And I think that other 15% are lying. I think we could create a situation that would make them nervous too. So you're certainly not alone. And, and I'm sorry that you experienced it so young. Most people report not feeling that anxiety until their early teens, those tween years. Uh, But certainly you can have it before that. Great. Well, in a way that helps me understand why, you know, I tend to run anxious and I've, you know, it's not in a a generalized anxiety disorder way. I think I just have the run of the mill anxiety that most people have. Right. You Um, bet. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that that was surprising that I had it at such a young age. And it's something that, and it's all, you know what, Matt, it's only around speaking in front of others. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I it's do not it. unusual. It's yeah. just not typical. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, the first part of your book is really about mindset and messaging. And so, yes. for anybody who is interested or or wants to do a better job of speaking, and like I said earlier, if it's in a in a staff meeting at a board meeting, you got to get this book because Matt, what he has done, this is a gift he really takes you through not just the psychology of where that comes from, but you give actual pragmatic tips for how to manage 
whatever, you know, your mindset and to move yourself forward. So I love that. That's the first half of his book, like he had mentioned. And then his six step methodology, I'm going to go through it quickly because I think everybody needs to hear what he has written about going big on small talk. I love that. So he talks about how to really how to utilize small talk in the, in the best way for situations that we find ourselves in toasts that tantalize. Love that. I mean, this is about how to give a toast, how to give a toast at a wedding, how to give a toast at someone's five-year work anniversary. Okay. That's making that imperfect pitch. And okay. We could do a whole episode on that because, you know, pitches are, are important and we really get up in our heads because we want everything to be perfect and there's no perfection. And for you, my listeners, you know, I talk about that quite a bit, uh, rocking the Q and a, and then he talks about feedback that doesn't flop and the secrets to saying we're sorry. And so what I would love you, Matt, to talk about is feedback that doesn't flop because criticism is so very hard for us to hear. So can you talk a little bit about about what you wrote on feedback? Absolutely, and I am a big advocate and, and proponent of Kim Scott's work on radical candor. I think it is a fantastic framework and approach to feedback. Kim is a friend and a colleague, we collaborate. Uh, So if if people are looking to learn more, absolutely check out my thoughts, but check out Kim's as well. Uh, So to step back, before we get into the specifics of feedback that doesn't flop, we have to appreciate that to be good at speaking in the moment, you have to address both your approach, your mindset, but also the way you structure and craft messages so that they're well packaged for people to digest them and focus so they're not rambling. So the methodology, I have six steps. The first four steps are mindset and approach. And the second two are the the way you structure messages and focus them. And that's important to understand because the advice I'm about to give is predicated on the fact that you have taken, that you address some mindset issues and that you appreciate the value of structure. So structure is really just a logical connection of ideas. Our brains are not wired for lists of information. So if I go into a feedback situation and I simply say, well, you're doing this wrong, you should do this, you should do that right, you should do that. In that list, that means nothing because it's hard to remember. We get overwhelmed with lists. Bullets kill, don't kill your audiences with bullet points. So we need to appreciate that structure is important. And that's the key to all spontaneous speaking situations. We adjust our mindset and then we deal with structure. So in terms of specific advice for feedback, the big mindset shift I think that has to happen in feedback is is that feedback is really an invitation to problem solve. So feedback is an invitation to problem solve. You're not coming in to bestow upon people your advice, guidance, and feedback. You are coming in to invite them to collaborate with you to address the problem. Because we know from a lot of research that if you frame it as as an invitation, people are more likely to collaborate. They will get less defensive. And when people contribute to the feedback, that is, they give some input into it, they're more likely to accept it and follow it. So this mindset shift is really important. Now, once you see this as an invitation to problem solve, that guides how you're going to give the feedback. It means I don't come at you and say, these are all the things that are wrong. It means you frame it from your perspective. You use I language. I feel, I think. So you'll see how this plays out. I have a four-step structure. I call it the four eyes because each step starts with the letter I and four eyes, meaning glasses, means you see things more clearly. So let me run through the four eyes quickly and then I'll give you an example how it plays out. So the first eye is information. You have to ground people in what am I giving the feedback on? And it needs to be concrete, specific, and as objective as possible. 
Second is impact. This is the impact it has on you or the team. Third is the most important part, the invitation. This is where you invite the person to solve the problem with you. This could and should be a question, but it could be a declarative statement. And then finally, the implications, that is the consequences, positive or negative. So let me make this very concrete. Imagine you're a manager of a team and you have an employee who is continually late for meetings and when they do show up, doesn't show up as prepared as they could be. So I might give a four eyes message like this. I might say, this is now the third meeting that you have been late for and unprepared. That's just an objective statement. Anybody could look at their watch. They could see the person doesn't have their stuff. That frames our conversation. I feel you are not prioritizing this meeting to the level that the rest of us are. That's the impact statement. I'm not saying you're not prioritizing. I say, I feel you're not prioritizing. So that can reduce some of the defensiveness. The invitation as a question might be, what can I do to help you arrive at our next meeting on time and prepared so that we can engage in a dialogue, a collaborative uh, activity? Or if this is a multiple offense, this is now the third or fourth time, I might not ask a question about how we can collaborate. I might be more declarative. I might say, I need you to be in the next meeting with your materials five minutes before we start. Less of an invitation, it's inviting a conversation at least, but it's a declaration, not a question. And then finally, the implications. I can say, and if you show up on time prepared, we'll get this project done and move on to one that seems to be a little cooler or better. Or I could have a negative implication. If you continue to show up late, we might have to remove you from the team. So by having that structure in the moment, I know I'm going to give the information, the impact, the invitation, and the implications. It gives you a roadmap. So when you're under pressure for, I have to give this feedback now, you just follow that structure and it helps package it up. Certainly you can give feedback in other ways, but I like to equip everybody with one tool that serves a particular mindset to help you manage challenging situations. So the four eyes work super well for giving feedback in the moment. So that's very different from, I was, my husband and I were having a conversation about feedback a couple yeah. of weeks ago. And I was telling him, I don't know what started this conversation. He's in management. And I was telling him that I don't mind Oh, I know what it was because I was listening to another podcast that was really very critical of the feedback sandwich. And I was talking about yeah. that I had been given this feedback sandwich throughout my career and that I don't mind it. So we went back and forth on our dog walk about what we thought about the feedback sandwich. Does it work? Does it does it not work? So, you know, for those who don't know, the feedback sandwich is really a positive, negative, positive when you need to talk to maybe a, a, an employee or a, a, a staff member. And how it works, how it doesn't work. What do you think about the feedback sandwich? So there's some logic behind the feedback sandwich that, that research has bared out. So if you give positive feedback, people become more receptive in general to feedback. So not necessarily in the moment. So feedback sandwich can come in lots of varieties. Depends where you put your meat and your bread, right? But right, right, right. typically it's positive, negative, positive. There is some research that says positive, positive, negative can actually help you. Uh, but it's less to me about the positive feedback being packaged with the negative feedback. It's more important that you as a person interacting with your colleagues or if you're a manager or a leader with your subordinates, that you're giving feedback consistently all the time. And people receive constructive feedback, negative feedback, if you will 
uh, better when they know that in the constellation of all of the feedback you give, you also give positive feedback. So if you only give negative feedback, you have a very different relationship with people. But if you're giving positive feedback throughout the day, the week, the month, the year, and you give some constructive feedback too, that is where the real value is. So it's not in the immediate messaging of the sandwich. It's more in the notion that positive feedback helps. And what Kim Scott teaches, and I think this is very important, to be a good feedback giver, you need to be a big, a good feedback recipient, which means we, as people in positions to give feedback, need to be soliciting feedback. And when we do receive it, receive it well. That doesn't mean we agree with it. It just means we appreciate it. That's better than the actual package of the positive, negative, positive sandwich. And I think there's something to the unconditional positive regard that comes, you know, from the field of psychology, right? About unconditional positive regard really for that person as a human being. I think that that's so important. And what I always have said in my practice to clients, you know, two plus decades is that I don't, and more in my work with uh, couples and families is that I don't, there's not much that we can't say to each other. It's the delivery. If you watch the delivery there's not much that we can't say to each other, but watch your tone, watch the words you use, you know, sort of the attitude. Is that, a, do you, does that align with you? Absolutely. Yeah. You have to be very, very conscious of yeah. the language you use, how and when you give the feedback. You should be thinking about what might be leading to the behavior that you're seeing. Uh, you know, for the person who's late and doesn't show up uh, with their work done, would your feedback differ if you knew they were caring for an elderly relative versus hanging out with friends partying late into the evening? Probably. So we need to do this calculus. Language words matter. In fact, uh, on my podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, I had uh, Jonah Berger. Jonah is a professor at Wharton. He studies language, among other things, and and influence and motivation. And he has some some data. And actually, uh, another guest, Robert Cialdini, shared the same thing. How you ask for feedback and what you label it matters a lot. So the word feedback is a loaded term. So you might ask for guidance or advice. Mm. That's different. And you're likely to get different information. If I came to you and said, I'd love some advice about how I can get better. Or if you came to me and said, can I give you some advice? If you come to me and say, can I give you some feedback? That feels very different for me. Yes. Yes. And so words matter in all of this. So or we need opinion. to opinion. Or what about, can I give you my opinion? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's that's a powerful way of doing it. It's the, it's yeah. reframing it, and again, it's trying to make the person person comfortable agreeing to solve the problem that you're putting forth. And if we invite in a language that is actually inviting and not off putting, it can help us. Yeah, and as of course as a therapist, I have to add to this that you know in the workplace, people come from their families of origin, and we have everybody has a history everybody's got an inner child and we're we're dealing with the way we were spoken to by our parents maybe by an aunt or uncle or a coach in our early years that's in our minds and so when we come into the workplace and you know we're consistently late these meetings we know we have to be at it our employer or our boss the managers taught the way they talk to us now we are responsible for ourselves but the way that we're talked to it can go one way or the other and i think that that's an important piece of this as well is that so many of us are dealing with we got our baggage we got our stuff so absolutely i like to joke that in any relationship work or personal it's all about finding people with matching luggage because we all have our baggage (laughs) right yes yes 
There you go. There you go. Okay. I love that. Thank you. So now I would love to talk about the secrets to, to saying we're sorry, because yes. I think we're not doing enough of that. Just saying we're sorry. Why did you have to write about this is what I'm curious about. <laughs> well, so in, in the work that I do, uh, I, I, started cataloging all the different types of spontaneous speaking that we do. And we do a tremendous amount. And there were, the list was very long. And I picked essentially the, the six that, that are most challenging for most people when I asked. And I have to share myself. So the, the apology apologies are really tough. People really struggle either because we're making a mistake in the moment and and it's just hard for us to recover or we're 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 really feeling burdened by the offense that we've made and often and the best recommendation is that you should apologize as immediate to the yes. incident as possible. So apologizing is hard for many people. And so I wanted, just like with all the other situations I, I talk about, to give people some directionality, to give people a structure that they can follow. So apologizing, again, we have to have some mindset uh, approaches to it. When you are apologizing, you are really trying to repair a relationship, a potential damaged relationship. And it's not just about the present, it's about the future. So we have to get our mind around that that the apology is serving two time frames the immediate time and the future and that for many people is hard because in the moment we feel embarrassed or upset or challenged and it's hard to see beyond this interaction so mindset shift around apologizing among other things is to think about its duality in terms of time for giving an apology i have an acronym that can help you you heard the four eyes for feedback i have triple a for apologies. I like to use acronyms that are easy to remember so people can access them better. And AAA, at least here in the United States, is, is a roadside service that helps you when you're having some trouble. And that's what AAA is for when you give an apology. So the, the three A's stand for acknowledge, appreciate, and amends. So acknowledge, we have to acknowledge the offending behavior. And this does two things for us, much like the information stage in the feedback it grounds what we're talking about. So we start with the offending behavior. Many of us, when we apologize, we apologize for how we made the person feel. We're that's, not apologizing for behavior. That's not an apology. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. right. So imagine you and I are in a meeting and you're talking and I interrupt you in the middle of your speaking. Uh, if I wanted to apologize, and I should, if I were to have done that, I actively work not to do that, but imagine it happened. I might say, I'm really sorry that I interrupted you in the midst of what you were saying during the meeting. So I'm very clear. That's what I'm apologizing for. That was the offending event. The second step is to appreciate. So you publicly accept how the offense might have impacted others. So I would say when I, my interruption likely devalued, uh, made you feel less valued in that moment. And it certainly inhibited the group from hearing the rest of your idea. That's the, that's the appreciate. And then the amends are how you're going to make up for that in the future. So I appreciate I've done this wrong. I'm sharing that I've done it wrong. And now here's what I'm going to do differently. So I might say, in the future, in this meeting and others, I will certainly let everybody finish speaking. I will then paraphrase what I heard before I actually make my contribution. Then we can have a discussion. Is that an appropriate behavior to change? Is that what we think makes sense? But I'm clearly demonstrating that I understand what I did. 
I understand how it could have impacted you. And here is my best attempt to remedy that situation in the future. So again, this opens up to conversation and it opens us up to change the behavior that caused the problem in the first place. I was, um, I have a sister I got into a big fight with last summer. It was so silly. I'm very close to her. We got into this stupid fight in Manhattan and made fools of ourselves in a restaurant because Uh we got loud. I'm a big Italian family. There's eight of us and it was was so dumb. Um, And I am a grown, we're grown adults. And (laughs) I said, uh, I said, I'm sorry to her in the moment. And then we went around and she said, it's fine. We went about the rest of the weekend and it wasn't really fine. It didn't sit with me. And we got back home. She lives in DC. I'm in Chicago. And I called her two weeks later because it just bothered my conscience. And I, she said, what's up? And I did exactly. So I'm a little proud of myself listening to you right now, because I said to her, I am really sorry. It's, it's, it's not going away for me. So I'm sure it's not going away for you. I need to give you a proper heartfelt apology. And I told her, that what I did was wrong. And I don't usually use absolutes like never and always, but in this situation, I spent the last couple of weeks working on what was going on inside of me as a therapist. Of course, I have to unpack that, um, you know, do my own due diligence and look at my own pockmarks on my face, so to speak, because I was wrong. And I said to her, I will never do that again. And I really mean it. And she said to me, thank you so much for calling me and for saying this, she said, it did make me truth be told it made me sort of not trust you a little bit. I was so blindsided by what you said to me. And it's interesting because I'm glad I did it because it, it would have, we would have moved through it, but I think that there would have been a little bit of uh, uns- a feeling of not being safe with each other, which is the most valuable thing to me in my relationship with her. And so I'm listening to you right now thinking, oh, I'm glad I did that. And of course I would. And it's good now. And I did promise and I will never do that again. And that was about something that I did. But I think that, you know, I think it behooves all of us listening to you and what you write out about your book is mind your ego, mind your ego, because so much of this is about ego, right? And pride. That's right. Yeah, and and there's a fundamental tenet that underlies all the work I do, and this book included, which is in your communication, your job is to be in service of your audience. Now, that doesn't mean you're a pushover and you let people walk all over you, but you have to be in service of your audience. And what I heard you say in that story with your sister is you put her needs, her, her feelings as a priority, and that you made it right by addressing that and by apologizing. And that's so important. And that's important in any communication. If you're pitching an idea, you have to put it from the perspective of the person you're pitching to. If I'm giving feedback, I have to give it to you in the perspective from your way of looking at it. So I really appreciate your example. Not only does it reinforce the importance and value of, of apologizing, but it also highlights this notion that we always have to be thinking about the value for the other person. And strengthening relationships, whether they be personal or professional, that's how we strengthen relationships. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. That's that, that's the only way I think that we strengthen relationships. So yes. Right. right. So Matt, tell me, why did you write this book? Like what, what got you, what, what did it, what got you thinking? Yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to start writing about this and starting the podcast. 
Yeah, well, so they they both have at their fundamental core, the podcast and the book, and obviously the podcast has been around a lot longer, is to help people hone and develop their communication. Throughout my life, uh, and I, I went to school, graduate school in communication, I worked in the corporate world for over 10 years running learning and development groups. I had lots and lots of people reporting to me, lots and lots of strategic communication, working with boards and partners and all of that. And what I saw very clearly is that communication matters. Communication absolutely influences the impact that you have in an organization, in your relationships, but also the accessibility and growth that you can have in your relationships and in your organizations. I clearly knew individuals who were amazingly brilliant, had great ideas, really strategic thinkers who could not articulate their points of view, especially when under pressure. And I saw others who were, let's just say, less strategic and less capable do really well because they were able to communicate. So this has always been something I've been fascinated with. It dates back to when I was a child. I can tell you lots of stories about how I got insight into the value of communication. But this, so so the podcast was really started as that need to, to help people around the world feel better about their communication, hone their communication, become better at it. And we've we've had good success. We've been on now for almost four years and a lot of people seem to get value from what we do. And I appreciate that. The book itself is on a subset and that is the mm. spontaneous speaking. And it has a very clear origin. The deans of the business school at Stanford came to me nine years ago and said, we have a problem. The problem is our amazingly bright and capable students are struggling to respond to cold calls. You remember those cold calls where yes. the professor uh -huh. and says, what do you think? They knew the, they know the answers. They just can't get it out. And they said, can you help us? And so that's when I did a deep dive into psychology, sociology, anthropology, neuroscience, improvisation, and found, founded this methodology, tested this methodology. And now every single Stanford student, uh, MBA student has a, a chance or a choice to take this material within the first three weeks of being at the school. They're there for two years. And what we're seeing is the students are saying it helps them to communicate more effectively in the moment, not just in class, but beyond. The professors are delighted because they're getting more responses and, and detailed answers. And what I learned in my co coaching practice and, and my teaching outside of the business school is that this is really helpful beyond Stanford. And so that's why I brought it into the podcast. We've had several episodes talking about this and into the book form to reach others to help them. Is this like a mini course or an orientation class for the the beginning MBA students? So it's both. So so it is, it is a workshop that they can all choose to take. And then we have other course offerings, not just at the business school, but at other places at Stanford. I co-teach with a, just an amazing improviser named Adam Tobin, and we teach this class generally. So people who are interested could go to Stanford Continuing Studies, which is open to anyone anywhere in the world, and get a dose of this as well. So it's offered in a variety of different ways. Okay. I have to ask you quickly. Yeah. So what... What are some tips you give to these? Because I, it's interesting, you know, when I have my clients, my therapy clients and my coaching clients are in law school, they're in MBA programs and exactly what you just said, the professor calls on them and they know the answer, but they just like, I clench up, I clench up. I just, I don't want to get it wrong. There's so much pressure. I'm comparing myself to, you know, my, the other students in the class or my friends actually, but I'm comparing myself because I want to sound smart. I don't want to sound stupid. What are yeah. some of the, the tips that you, you give to these students? Thank you for that question, because it really gets at the crux of what they, the, the book is all about. So 
there are several things. One, we have to manage our anxiety. So there's six steps. The first step is you got to manage your anxiety. We talked about it. It's ubiquitous. Many of us feel it. And there are things you can do to manage both symptoms and sources. And I spend time giving advice on that. The first book I wrote is called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. And it's about 50 techniques to manage anxiety and communication. So I spend a lot of time in my life and in my research studying those ideas. The problem you're talking about is a big hurdle. And it's a it's it's really a big unlock for people, which is our desire to do it right gets in the way of us doing it well. We want to give the right answer. We want to give the best feedback. We want to be the most interesting person in small talk. And that pressure we put on ourselves actually works against us. It makes it much more difficult for us to do that. And it boils down to simple cognitive bandwidth. Think of your brain as a computer. It is not an ideal uh, uh, analogy, but it works. So in the circumstance where I am trying to do it right, I am judging and evaluating to such a high degree that I am reducing my bandwidth to actually produce what I want. So like a computer, if you have lots of apps open or windows open, each one of those applications or windows is performing less well because you're stretching the bandwidth. So if we can turn that volume down, I'm not saying get rid of a judging and evaluating. You do need to do that. But if we can turn it down a little bit, it will help us. And so I tell people the goal is to focus on connection, not perfection. The goal of communication is to connect and to collaborate. In fact, the origin of the word communication means to make common. So the way you make things common is through connection. It's through collaboration. And yes. focusing on that takes you out of your head and therefore frees up all those resources to communicate effectively. So that's essentially what we really work with the students on. There are a series of other steps, like we talked about mindset, listening, et cetera, right. but it really boils down to how we see what we're expected to oh, do. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for that. And and yeah. what I tell clients is to put like the racehorses, put the blind, the blinkers on and mm -hmm. to look straight ahead and to, to, we do that compare and despair, which is from the uh -huh. world of cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. And I say, put the blinkers on like the racehorses. You know, if you've ever been to a horse race, you see some of them have the blinkers on because those horses tend to look around, they get nervous and they just, we need to put those on so they look straight. And that's what I would tell clients because what they tell me is, they're going to say something like, I'm going to look stupid. It's not going to be, I'm not, you know, it's not going to be good enough or they're going to judge me. So I thank you for that because this is something that causes so much anxiety and, and people. Well, absolutely. And I, I love the, I have not heard compare and despair. Uh, and that's great. I'm always looking for catchy phrases <laughs> that help people remember. That's like perfection, connection over perfection. Yes. Uh, and I love yours. Yes. Yes, that's very good. Thank you. You you've helped me in many ways today, but uh, with your example. But uh, I love that. Thank you. So, Matt, where can my people find you? Where are you on the socials? Tell me about where they can find your book. Yeah. So, um, I there are lots of places. First and foremost, uh, mattabrahams.com has all the information about me, my coaching, my I have a whole set of resources available to people. I'm a huge user of LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. it link in with me. I would love to connect that way. And please consider buying the book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. And absolutely, if you love this podcast, which is awesome, listen in to Think Fast, Talk Smart, and hopefully that will be helpful to you as well. Okay, thank you. And I'll put everything for the listener in the show notes so you all can find everything about Matt there. Matt, thank you. Thank you so much for writing this book. It's much needed and go out and grab it. If you have any interest in 
learning how to better your speaking, whether even be at the dining room table or if you're a keynote at a speaking event, read this book. It's going to help you. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was fun.